You're listening to a sermon from Leewood Baptist Church. For more information about us, visit our website at leewoodbaptist.com. If you have a Bible, I invite you to turn with me to Ruth chapter 1. We're going to be going through this book during this time of Advent, of Christmas season. But before we get into our study here in Ruth, I want to give you permission, not that you need my permission to do anything, but I want to give you permission, and I'm willing to be the bad guy for you. We're entering into a time of year of Christmas that for the next three to four weeks is incredibly busy. You're going to be invited to Christmas parties. Marilyn and I were at one yesterday. You're going to have family get-togethers. There's things going on here, even in our faith family. You're going to be busy getting gifts for people. Let me encourage you and give you permission, and I'll even be the bad guy if you do this. You can blame it on me, to say no this year. It is okay to say no this year. So if you're thinking about, oh my goodness, I need to send Christmas cards out this year. I need to take the perfect family picture and send that out to a hundred people. You can say no, that's okay. If you don't want to host a Christmas party, you can say no, it's okay. Life will go on. But I encourage you not to make Christmas this time of year so incredibly busy that this time next year when you look back and you see this time of year coming that you don't dread it. Because I think some of us deep down, we can enter into that uh, arena of, oh man, we've got all this to do. Don't allow this time of year to become a to-do list. You have my permission to say no. If you have any family that makes a big deal about it, you say, well, my pastor said so, and I'm happy to talk with him, okay? So I'll be the bad guy for you, okay? It's okay to say no this year. If you have a Bible, turn with me to Ruth chapter 1. If you don't have a Bible, there's a Bible in the pew in front of you. It's on page 175. If you don't have a Bible, you don't own one, and you'd like one, uh, feel free to take that home. That is our church's gift uh, to you. We just want to say thank you for being with us, and that's our gift to you. So feel free to take that home uh, with you. There's more of where those came from. So uh, feel free to take that uh, home with you if you don't own a Bible. Today, uh, Maggie and Abby led us during our time of our lighting of our uh, Advent candle. We're talking about hope today in Advent. So we're going to see here in Ruth chapter 1, we're going to see Christmas and Advent even in Ruth. Now you might say, Adam, aren't you kind of straying away from your typical passages of Scripture at Christmas time? Like, isn't there some, something in a pastoral contract that says that you have to preach from Luke chapter 2 uh, at Christmas time? Isn't there somewhere that they tell you in seminary that you have to preach from Matthew at Christmas time? Isn't there some kind of rules that say you have to preach from Isaiah about the prophecy of the birth of Christ at Christmas time? No, there's not. But we're going to look here in Ruth during these next four weeks of Advent, and we're going to see pictures of Jesus, his coming to this earth, even in Ruth. Now, there's a lie that's floating around out in, even unfortunately, in in our evangelical circles. 
that the Old Testament is not relevant today. That we really shouldn't waste our time with the Old Testament. The Old Testament is hard to understand, that it's just, it doesn't, uh, it's not applicable today. But I want to show you the Old Testament as we look at Christ and the redemptive history and the thread that ties all of it together, the Old Testament is crucial to that. So we're going to be looking at Ruth chapter 1. Now, I have a confession to make. Ruth is my, my favorite Old Testament book. I love the book of Ruth. Maybe I'm, I'm a romantic at heart. This is a romance story. So men, if your wife or significant other is wanting to go on a date to a movie, don't, you don't even have to do that. Bring them to church for free. And we're going to have a, a romantic time together looking at this love story here in Ruth chapter 1. And then in the entire book of Ruth, not just Ruth chapter 1, but the entire book. As we read Ruth, and this is why I love Ruth, and I love a lot of the Old Testament. I love narrative in the Old Testament and, and, and in Scripture, because as we read Scripture, as we read it, we want to read it like, not like a newspaper. Sometimes we can approach Scripture when we read it like a newspaper. We're just trying to get the information down. Let's not do that with Ruth. Let's read this as we would a movie script. Let's put ourselves there. Let's see what these people saw. Let's feel what they felt. Let's maybe even smell what they smelt. Let's use our senses as we read this, and we're going to see God's redemptive plan unfold. That God is going to use a woman, Ruth, to show his redemptive nature. So this, this book here of Ruth, it's more than a love story. It contains truth about God and his character that can change our lives. The book of Ruth is one of two books named after a woman in the Bible, the other being Esther. It is also the only book of the Bible named after a Gentile, a non-Jewish person. So even in that, with even the name of Ruth, we see God's heart for the nations. The theme of Ruth is God's providential care for his people. We're going to see that God cares, that God has a plan for his people. When all this took place at this time of history, it took place at the time of the judges. Now, we don't have time to talk a lot about judges, but the Israelites had been brought out of Egypt. They had wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. At the end of those four decades, they then settled in the promised land, and they were then ruled by judges. They didn't have a king yet. They were ruled by judges. Well, what does the Bible tell us about the time of the judges? Judges 21 says, everyone did what they thought was right in their own eyes. So it was chaos, kind of anarchy. It was a crazy time to live. It was total chaos in the nation of Israel and the world. So if we can just think of that going on in that culture, in that time, let's think of that. Let's remember that as we begin reading in verse 1 of Ruth chapter 1, and it says this. During the time of the judges, there was a famine in the land. A man left Bethlehem in Judah with his wife and two sons to stay in the territory of Moab for a while. The man's name was Elimelech, and his wife's name was Naomi. 
The, name, the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephratites from Bethlehem in Judah. They entered the fields of Moab and settled there. Naomi's husband Elimelech died, and she was left with her two sons. Her sons took Moabite women as their wives, one named Orpah, the second was named Ruth. After they lived in Moab about ten years, both Malon and Kilion also died. And Naomi was left without her two children and without her husband. So immediately in this narrative, in this story, and I don't like to say story because this really happened. This isn't like Dr. Seuss or Mother Goose. This really happened. What we immediately have in this is we have tragedy. We're introduced to a family. We're introduced to Elimelech, Naomi, and their two sons with pretty cool names, Malon and Kilion. And famine hits the land. Water was hard to find. Food was hard to grow. And because of the famine, this family has to leave leave Bethlehem and go down to Moab. That probably would have taken them a week to 10 days to do. Moab and the people who lived there, they were enemies of Israel. So immediately, Elimelech, Naomi, Malon, and Kilion are entering into enemy territory. But they were so desperate for food because of the family, they moved there anyway. So they go to Moab, and the two sons, Malon and Kilion, marry Moabite women, Ruth and Orpah, not Oprah, Orpah. And we are introduced to the main role player in this book, Ruth. So what do we find out about Ruth? Well, one, she's a Moabite. You might sit there and you say, Adam, what's the big deal of Ruth being a Moabite? What's the big deal about these two guys marrying Moabite women? Well, in Genesis chapter 19, God destroyed a city, Sodom and Gomorrah. And Lot, a guy who lived there, Lot's wife was disobedient. She turned around to see the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. And what happened, if you're familiar with the story? She turned to a pillar of salt. Well, what happened? Lot and his daughters, and you can, this is truly in the Bible. You can read it. I'm not making this up. Genesis 19. Lot and his daughters live in a cave. His two daughters decide to get him drunk and to try to get pregnant by him in order to have children. They both get pregnant, and the people that come from that family line are Moabites. And in biblical history, Israel and Moabites, they're at constant struggle, as you can imagine. In Deuteronomy, the Israelites, God's covenant people, are told not to allow Moabites into their assembly of worship. They're not to have anything to do with them because of their wickedness and of their, because of their idol worship. So what we have here in Ruth, we have some real racial tensions going on. Israelites hated Moabites. Moabites hated Israelites. Israelites were told to basically ostracize them. But God still chooses Ruth a Moabite woman, to accomplish his plan. So these two sons of Elimelech marry these Moabite women. And so because of this, Ruth would have been an outcast. 
Ruth was in a marriage that her husband's people, the Israelites, would have disapproved of, and her own people would have disapproved of. Ruth was also barren. She had no children. She has no husband. We're going to see this, and we just saw this because he dies. She has no children. She has no husband. And because of all this, she's an outcast. At this time of history, if you had no husband and no children to take care of you, you basically went into the welfare system. What was the welfare system? Begging on the street. She has nothing. She's a nobody. She's an outcast. Well, let's keep reading. Verse 6. She, talking about Naomi, and her daughters-in-law set out to return from the territory of Moab because she had heard in Moab that the Lord had paid attention to his people's needs by providing food, providing them food. She left the place where she had been living, accompanied by her two daughters-in-law, and traveled along the road leading back to the land of Judah. Naomi said to them, each of you go back to your mother's home. May the Lord show kindness to you as you have shown to the dead and to me. May the Lord grant each of you rest in the house of a new husband. She kissed them and they wept loudly. So now we have these three women, Naomi, Ruth, and Orpah. They've lost their husbands. There's no children to take care of, me, care of them. The famine has now spread into Moab. So Naomi hears that there's food back home in Judah, in Bethlehem. And so she makes a decision, a good decision, to go back home, to go back to Bethlehem. So remember, it's a seven to 10 day trip back to Bethlehem. And somewhere along that journey, she tells her two daughter-in-laws to go back, that they'll have a better life without her, which is true. She's saying, go back home to your families and this culture. If a woman married, uh, when a woman married a man, she immediately was all in on, her, on his family. She basically left her family and was all involved with his family. Well, the two husbands are gone. Naomi is saying, my sons are gone. Go back to your families. You'll have a better life without me. So somewhere along the journey, they begin having this conversation. Let's see what happens. Let's look at verse 10. They said, to her, we, they said to her, we insist on returning with you to your people. But Naomi replied, return home, my daughters. Why do you want to go with me? Am I able to have any more sons who could become your husbands? Return home, my daughters. Go on, for I am too old to have another husband. Even if I thought there was still hope for me to have a husband tonight and to bear sons, would you be willing to wait for them to grow up? Would you restrain yourselves from remarrying? No, my daughters, my life is much too bitter for you to share because the Lord's hand has turned against me. What in the world is Naomi talking about here? Well, what happened in this time period, there was a thing called a kinsman redeemer. When a woman, if her husband died and he had a brother, it was that brother, brother's legal obligation to marry his sister-in-law. You want to talk about some fun family dynamics. So all of a sudden, 
the expectation would have been for Orpah and Ruth to marry a son of Naomi. There's a problem, though. The only two sons she had was Malon and Kilion. They're dead. And Naomi is saying, listen, even if I was young enough to get married again, and even if I was to get pregnant tonight, are you really going to sit around and wait for those boys to grow up to take care of you? No, go home. She's talking about a kinsman redeemer. There is no redeemer. There is no husband in play here. There's no more brothers to marry into. And basically the reason behind this law was to take care of widows. So these widows would not be left without anything. There'd be another man to take care of them. That's why they set the system up like this. The system's not going to work in this situation. And at the end of this conversation, end of this section that we just read, Naomi tells her daughters-in-law, my life is much too bitter for you to share because the Lord's hand has turned against me. You want to talk about a hopeless situation. There's no hope for these women. None. They are looking at a future of begging, a future of social outcast, and no one to take care of them. It's hopeless. It's absolutely hopeless. And what does it say? Look at verse 14. Again, they wept loudly. These ladies are destroyed. They're distraught. They're not just crying, there's, they're weeping. And there's a difference between crying and weeping. They are coming apart. Again, they wept loudly, verse 14, and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. Naomi said, look, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Follow your sister-in-law. But Ruth replied, don't plead with me to abandon you or to return and not follow you. For wherever you go, I will go. Wherever you live, I will live. Your people will be my people, and your God will be my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. And may the Lord punish me and do so severely, if anything but death separates you and me. When Naomi saw that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped talking to her. After Naomi lays out the situations for these girls, they begin to weep, not cry, but weep. Orpah then gets up. She realizes the situation and leaves. She takes Naomi up on the offer and leaves. She goes back home. But it says that Ruth clings to her mother-in-law. Now, that's a little different. Let's just be honest here. Sometimes in-law relationships are not the easiest relationships to navigate. But Ruth clings to her. It carries the idea of a strong emotional attachment and it shows the intensity of Ruth and Naomi's relationship. 
I think of a small child grabbing onto their mom or dad's leg and holding on and not letting go. That is not just about a physical clinging by that child. That is an emotional clinging, not letting go. This term cling is also used in Scripture in Genesis 2, verse 24, to describe a husband's attachment to his wife. There's a strong emotional attachment. Naomi tries to talk Ruth out of it. Ruth's pretty stubborn, isn't she? And Ruth wouldn't hear it. And so then she goes on in verse 16 and 17, and she says, I'm not letting you talk me out of this. Where you go, I'm going. Where you live, I'm living. Your people will be my people. Now that's a huge statement for a Moabite to say. She says, your God will be my God. Now that's a huge statement as well, because look again up at verse 15. Naomi says, go back to your people and to her gods. That's where Orpah went, to her gods, little g. We see a conversion here happening in Ruth. Ruth is now leaving idol worship and worshiping God, Yahweh, big G. She says, where you die, I will die. And I'm going to be buried with you. And if I break this covenant with you, may God punish me and do it severely. So Ruth promises to stay with Naomi. She promises to live with Naomi. She's willing to change her identity for Naomi. She changes her religion because of Naomi and promises to be with Naomi until death. Now, there's something we need to understand about Scripture as a whole. Let's zoom out for just a second. Covenants are the backbone of Scripture, All throughout Scripture, we see in the Old Testament, God making covenants more than promises to His people. And here we see Ruth making a covenant with Naomi. And what a promise made by Ruth. We need to remember who Ruth's making this promise to. Ruth is making a promise of a mother-in-law that doesn't change, that doesn't share her same nationality. But despite all of their differences, Ruth makes this covenant of loyalty to Ruth and Naomi's whole outlook on life. This is not going to be an easy woman to live with for Ruth. Because look at verse 19. Let's keep going. The two of them traveled until they came to Bethlehem. When they entered Bethlehem, the whole town was excited about their arrival, and the local women exclaimed, can this be Naomi? Don't call me Naomi. Call me Mara, she answered, for the Almighty has made me very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why do you call me Naomi since the Lord has opposed me and the Almighty has afflicted me? So Naomi came back from the territory of Moab with her daughter-in-law, Ruth the Moabitess. They arrived in Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. So we need to understand who Ruth is hitching her wagon to, so to speak. Ruth and Naomi, they make that week and a half long trip to Bethlehem. 
the people there in Bethlehem, they're initially excited to see Naomi. She's come home. This should be a joyful occasion. She's come home. She's moved back to her hometown, her home country. The women even exclaim, can this be Naomi? It's almost like they can't believe it. And they walk in, and what does Naomi say? She says, don't call me Naomi. Call me Mara, which means bitter. Now, names, especially in the Old Testament, mean a lot to people. They took a lot of time in naming their sons and daughters. And so for Naomi to say, by changing my name, I'm changing my identity. This is who I am. And so this is what, who is she saying by her name change? I'm bitter. I'm a bitter woman. My life is hopeless. She says, I left here and my life was full, but when I came back, I'm empty. Why do you call me Naomi? The Lord has opposed me and the Almighty has afflicted me. Now, there's something else we need to understand about this culture and context. It was often thought that if you lost loved ones, if you lost your ability to have any kind of living, that you must have sinned and God was punishing you. Remember Job? Job lost everything. He lost his kids, he lost his wealth, he lost his health, and he was left with a wife that was telling him to curse God and die. And his buddies, his friends tell him, well, maybe you made God mad. Maybe, maybe you did something wrong. And so God's judging you. And don't we sometimes have that same idea today? That if things are going well in my life, therefore God must be blessing me. And if things are going bad, we start saying, what have I done wrong? What have I done to deserve this? Have you ever heard that phrase before? So that's what Naomi's thinking. That's what she's saying. But as we understand the character of God and the gospel, there's nothing that you and I can do to make God love us less. And there's nothing you and I can do to make God love us more. So we need to view this passage with a lens of the gospel. But we see Naomi is in this hopeless situation and Ruth is stepping in here. And despite the bitterness of Naomi, the hopelessness of Naomi, despite all of this, there's a beautiful picture happening here between Ruth and Naomi that I don't want us to miss. Because the character and loyalty of Ruth is a picture of God's faithfulness to us. Because when we look at our spiritual state, where we are as human beings spiritually, we are hopeless. We are broken. We have brokenness in our lives. Our lives are chaotic and messed up. We sin. Everything we should do, we don't do. And the things we should do, we don't. And so we live in this hopeless situation because of sin. We rebel against God. We tell God he doesn't know what he's doing. We have a tendency to shake our fist at God. We are in a hopeless situation because of sin. But what happened? 
God sent His only Son, Jesus Christ, to this planet to identify with us, to prove that He was God, then to die for the payment of our sins, to change our state from hopelessness to hope. Jesus then rose again three days later to give us victory over sin in a brand new spiritual life. And this picture of Ruth's loyalty and faithfulness to Naomi is a picture of God's faithfulness to us. And what's going to happen, I don't want to give away the rest of the story, but what God is going to do, God's going to do the same for Ruth. Ruth is in a hopeless situation of of her own. But God is going to provide a redeemer for Ruth. Ruth is in a desperate situation. She's a foreigner in a foreign land. She's lost her husband. And the only family she has is her bitter mother-in-law. She has nothing. She's dirt poor. However, God is in control of the whole situation. And as we continue on, we're going to see that God is going to provide someone to come and rescue Ruth. And as we look at the the life of Naomi and Ruth right here in Ruth chapter 1, we are in the same hopeless situation because of our sin. But God has provided a rescuer. God's going to provide a knight in shining armor for Ruth. As we continue in our study on Ruth in the next few weeks, we will see that God is going to demonstrate his providential care and faithfulness to Ruth and to us. In a hopeless situation for Ruth, there's going to be a Redeemer. He's coming, and He's going to turn a hopeless situation into hope. Let's pray. God, thank you for the Old Testament. Thank you that even in this hopeless situation that Naomi and Ruth found themselves in, and we even see the parallel of that to our own spiritual state, we thank you that you are sovereign, you're in control. We thank you that you provided Ruth a redeemer from a hopeless situation, and we'll see that in a few weeks. But God, we thank you that in our hopeless situation, You've provided us a Redeemer. We thank you that he has come, that he was so in love with us that he was willing to die for us and make us his pride and joy, his bride. And we thank you that, Jesus, you have turned our hopeless situation into hope and expectancy. And so, God, I pray that as we continue to look at the book of Ruth these next few weeks, I pray that you would stir up our affection for you as we see your redemptive nature towards us. Thank you for this time of year where we really can think and meditate upon that. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening. 
If you're in the Kansas City area, we'd love to have you be our guest. We're located at 8200 State Line Road in Leewood, Kansas. Worship services are on Sunday mornings at 1030. To learn more about us, visit our website at leewoodbaptist.com.